This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Arjo. It's through Arjo's ongoing partnership and generous support that we are able to host our thought-provoking podcast. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to learn more about Arjo. The idea of that isn't really talked about so much is, is a term called gendered ageism, which is really the intersection between ageism and sexism. So discrimination based on your age and discrimination based on your sex. And I think the important point is that women are, are at that intersection, right? They're the ones that are experiencing discrimination in both of these areas. And I think it really does impact in ways that might be vis- visible, but also ways that are really, you know, perhaps subtle. This is Coming of Age, meeting the needs of our aging population, a podcast about how we can better support our seniors. I'm your host, Donna Duncan. I am also the CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, which represents about 70% of long-term care homes in Ontario, Canada. Today, I'm joined by two distinguished guests to talk about that difficult topic of ageism, and particularly ageism and women. It's a topic of significant interest to both Dr. Paula Rochon, a geriatrician and research leader for Women's College Hospital and the Women's Age Lab in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, and Dr. Paul Higgs, a sociologist and professor of aging at University College London in the United Kingdom. Today, we're privileged to have guests from across the ocean from one another and uh, so delighted to have both of you join us today for what I think is going to be a really, well, I know is going to be a very stimulating discussion. Today, we're going to focus on the unique health and well-being needs of older women. Uh, If they face health inequities as women access seniors care in Ontario, Canada and other jurisdictions around the world. We're going to talk about gender ageism, and we're going to build on the work of the Women's Age Lab here in Canada, and the work of Paula Rochon, and we're looking forward to exploring ageism in society more generally, its harmful effects on older women, and if there is a gender dimension to ageism in relation to long-term care and care homes. So with that, I really do want to welcome my guests, uh, Paul and uh, Paula. Welcome. So Paula, why don't we start with you? What common challenges do you see women facing as they age? Well, I think women have a lot of challenges. And this is a whole area that, you know, we just haven't really spent enough time looking at. But one of the things that we need to think about for women is that women are living longer than men. You know, one of the things we sort of don't always remember is that women, most women are actually living in their homes and living well. But along with, you know, sort of the good things that are happening with aging, we also need to think about uh, issues that are of concern to women in particular, but also I think concern to all of us, things like loneliness as an example. The fact that women live longer than men also means that they're more likely to be living alone. People who live alone are more likely to be lonely. So that's something that women uh, particularly experience and an example of, you know, maybe one of the challenges that they face. 
Paul, from your perspective? Well, I think one of the things we have to um, appreciate is just how you know old age has changed. That when our grandparents were old, that it was relatively minority experience. You know, many uh, countries set their retirement ages higher than the life expectancy. So one of the things we have to first of all understand is that old age is a normal expectation for most people. And that includes women, and women do live longer than men. Also, the nature of, of life after retirement has actually changed dramatically as well. It's now up to a third of someone's life. So that's actually quite a large chunk of people's you know, experience, not just a small period after they either left the workforce or that they have become grandparents. And so these changes have been embedded in society that it's a different society in which generations don't necessarily live together that's something that's quite unusual in the last 150 years so that the multi-generational family has become less of a reality for most people in Canada and in Europe. It's such a great point in terms of families not uh, living together and staying together. As you've said long-term care is a place where there are far more women than men. You know, I think in Ontario, something that we don't really appreciate is about, you know, close to, I think, 70% of long-term care home residents are women. Uh, And so part of that is related to some of the social circumstances, I think, that perhaps Paul, you know, spoke to. You know, we also mentioned that women live longer than men, so they're more likely to outlive a spouse. But traditionally, women have been caregivers. They've been the ones providing the care. And, you know, when it's their turn, sometimes it's, you know, who's there to provide the, the care for the for the women. And so as a result of that, there, there may not be somebody and there may not be that, as Paul mentioned, that intergenerational opportunity for them to go. That's in part, I think, explains why there is a real gender piece to long-term care. I'm really curious, and and having the benefit of of Paul and Paula here today, as you reflect on on the healthcare needs of women, what are some of the more specific needs of women? And you've spoken about about loneliness and isolation, family members, women aging, uh, and living longer than men. Would either of you say that there are that women would have more unique healthcare needs as they get older versus the the healthcare needs of men as they age? Is there a difference? Well, I think one of the, the interesting things is that there is a divide between health and social care in the UK, and many of the needs that we're talking about often that are you know that gender specific are about the social care that older women might need. Primarily because they, as they grow older and become much, you know, become they become frailer. But in some senses, that the, the social care that would have been provided by the household can't be actually provided. And in Britain, you don't get social care provided by the National Health Service. So if something is defined as a healthcare need, then the hospital and the general practices can actually provide it. But if it's defined defined as a social care they won't necessarily provide it. And that's where, as Paula was saying, the actual needs of older people to have care provided by somebody which has traditionally fallen to women isn't actually any longer necessarily available. So it becomes 
very much a specific issue around you know the needs of women. Men, in some senses, also have social care needs, but that there there is some evidence that they may actually get interventions quicker because, in some senses, that they're deemed not to be able to deal with it by themselves. We're certainly seeing that in in Ontario, we've experienced the the tension between living and care in our long term care systems, and what is healthcare, and we're trending towards more of a medicalization of uh, our care homes. And would you see that's a, a fair observation, Paula? I I do think so, but I think just to go back to that sort of social piece that that Paul brought up. Another component of it, too, has to do potentially with resources. And, you know, that's very much a gender kind of piece, too, that women, you know, and we talk about this further, but just may not have the resources that a man might have to be able to provide some of those social supports or care supports that they might need in their in their home. So that's uh, that's another particular piece. But it's also important to think, you know, to go back to the medical side. There are also important differences, I think, to think about between women and men. So women, for example, are more likely to have chronic conditions. You know, they have conditions, not just one condition, but often multiple conditions that they'll live with for long periods of time. So it might be that maybe they have heart disease, but maybe they also have arthritis and maybe they also have, uh, you know, diabetes or something else that needs to be managed. And so that requires perhaps a little, a little bit of a different kind of care. And so that can be one of the distinguishing things. Also relates to perhaps need for medications that they might have and uh, sometimes need for things like, for example, medication supervision and supervision of that kind of activity is one of the reasons why people may uh, need to go to long-term care. As we've been looking at our data and we've been crunching a lot of data in uh, with our, our team members here at the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, and, and we have identified that the majority of admissions into uh, our long-term care homes now, the average age is about 82 they're presenting their, uh, to your point, up to 13 different medications is is not uncommon uh, and multiple, multiple comorbidities. So if we put a gender overlay with this, it would be very interesting as we think about how we're supporting the individuals in our long-term care homes. And certainly dementia is one of the prevailing presentations in, in our residents. Seeing that, th- that they are women, what what would need to be different as we think about gender? So that, I think, is a really big issue. Like we said, the majority of people in long-term care homes are women. You know, they are of advanced age. They have particular needs. But if you actually go to the literature and look at, for example, the design of long-term care homes, how are they being designed to specifically respond or to address particular needs of women? It's almost impossible to find things. Like, it's just almost not there. So, you know, maybe. Not to say that it isn't important. I think it is important, but people aren't necessarily asking some of those questions. And part, some of it might relate to the care that they require, maybe because of the conditions that might be more common, or maybe it's, you know, because of those conditions, they're more likely to be on medications and the added need to pay attention uh, to those medications in women. You know, women more likely to be given medications that might be considered inappropriate women more likely to develop adverse drug events, you know, so really sort of looking at that kind of thing. But from the social perspective, it's also about what are the things in the environment that might be particularly appealing to women or things that might be important. 
And, you know, I think those are important questions that you need to further speak to long-term care residents about so that obviously the balance about the social and the medical cares is being met. There's also another issue, which is the fact that care is a very intimate and personal uh, activity. And I think here, the fact that you've got a preponderance of women in, in nursing homes means that there has to be much more awareness of the importance of intimate body care and whether you can actually have, you say, you know, men, you know, carrying out these tasks on women and, you know, that the, a greater sensitivity to the fact that women actually see care and their care as, as, as very much about their identity and their personalities. And so that it becomes, you know, as important to keep their uh, dignity as it is to, you know, provide them with care. I'm just thinking of some research that was done by a, a PhD student of mine looking at, at uh, women from the African Caribbean community in Britain. And one of the things that he found in his research, looking specifically at this group, was that the women in care homes often found that the carers didn't actually know how to care for black women's hair. Now, it might seem a very, very small thing, but the fact that, it, that you know their, their hair was something that they took great pride in. And if someone doesn't know how to actually use the combs properly to actually maintain the uh, hairstyles that they want, it actually is quite distressing. And so one of the things that we have to also be aware of is that you know, that the, the cultural and social context of being a woman in, in today's world isn't just a question of inputs and outputs. I'm so, so both of you have such a depth of knowledge in, in research and to your, to your example, Paul, I think it's, it's just such a great example. What we're not seeing is the translation of your findings from research into practice. We're not seeing them translate into policy, into, to your point, Paula, design standards as we think about the type of home and environment within which a woman would want to live and be supported. And how do we how do we make sure that the research that that so many governments have actually invested in remarkably how how do we take this and and convert it into practice convert it into policy to make it come to life and make it come to life within the context of of the individuals about whom we're speaking and what what is the barrier? Is it ageism? Is it because it's women that we're not seeing this type of movement, or is it just ageism generally? I, I really welcome your thoughts on what are the barriers to to moving these really important research findings forward. Well, one of the pieces I think that we we obviously need to talk about is this idea of ageism. And maybe starting by just describing, you know, what that's all about. I mean, ageism is a term that we've heard. And I would say, you know, in the last while, especially, you know, the last couple of years, we've heard a lot more about ageism. But it's basically discrimination based on sex. And that's something that a term that's been around for quite a while, you know, I guess sort of relatively, maybe not quite that long, but into the late 60s. And it was coined by a geriatrician named Robert Butler to really sort of talk about these issues about sort of the negative side, I guess, of, of, of getting older. But the idea of that isn't really talked about so much is, is a term called gendered ageism, which is really the intersection between ageism and sexism. So discrimination based on your age and discrimination based on your sex. 
And I think the important point is that women are are at that intersection, right? They're the ones that are experiencing discrimination in both of these areas. And I think it really does impact in ways that might be visible, but also ways that are really, you know, perhaps subtle. But I think it's a, a very important piece. What are some of those ways? Can you speak to the to the subtle ones, but also perhaps some of the more overt ones that we can see, but we aren't we aren't addressing? I think there's a news story in Canada I noticed over the last couple of weeks of, of, about a news presenter who was basically dismissed because that she didn't dye her hair any longer. Now, in some senses, that that may be very trivial, but it actually does speak to the gendered nature of ageism, because I doubt if the, and I think that they, in my reading of those reports, that they didn't actually apply them to very famous male newscasters. That's a very obvious way that the standards that women have to actually meet as they grow older are different to the standards that men have to meet. But there is also a whole series of other simple facets which go back into history, which I think are quite important. And one of the points that I think that yeah, Paula would raise is, is the idea of the pensions. Pensions have been constructed in most countries around a male breadwinner. And so that you actually have women often not actually having full pension entitlements in their own right, or if they, or if they do, that they may be interrupted by the fact that they may have had children and therefore are not making contributions. So consequently, they enter retirement, they enter later life with less resources, and that that isn't ever necessarily challenged or, or rectified. And so this is one of, one of the things that happens, that you are not starting from the same position. That very much ties into you know, maybe some of the issues that we alluded to about, you know, perhaps long-term care. Women who are older today, for example, were less likely to have worked in the workforce. And when they did work in the workforce, perhaps they earned less than their male colleagues. And I, I think it's not uncommon that if there were pensions, if when they took time off for, for childcare, they wouldn't receive those pensions. So in the end, you end up with women who are not only living longer than men, but they're living with less resources. And that then directly translates into their ability to provide, shall we say, some of the social things that they might need to support themselves, or even some of the health-related things that they might need to support themselves, for example, uh, in their home. So, you know, those are, those are um, big issues that translate into a number of different pieces later on. I'm really curious about the baby boomers and the path forward. Uh, we've recently interviewed about, I think, close to 36 individuals between the ages of 60 and 75, and none of whom are planning to receive care in any environment other than their home. Uh, they have not had discussions with their children about their care and the pathway. They have not costed or, or considered what the cost of, of having to, to pay for care should it should they need to access private care. And uh, so they, 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 they're sort of got their head in the sand. Our sense is that the, this, this, these next waves of baby boomers are going to want something very different. Uh, we know that the population over 80 will double in Ontario over the next 12 years. 
Will those individuals, certainly the ones we've spoken to who are between 65 and, and, or 60 and 75, they're not having those discussions. They have no intention of accessing care the way their, their parents may have. How do we better prepare for this generational shift? Well, I think the thing is that you have to realize that the, we call them the baby boomers, but they are a cohort, but they're really a culture as well. The, the, the baby boomer cohorts actually brought with them youth culture as a u- universal phenomenon. But it's also a phenomenon that hasn't then gone away as these people have grown older. You can see youth cultures in previous centuries. But the point is that when people became adults, became you know, mature, they didn't actually still retain their identity as a youth culture. Whereas the, the, the example of the Rolling Stones is that they continue to be embodiments of youthful rebellion, even if they're in their in their 80s, sorry. And that part of the issue then you have if you're trying to make people think about growing older is this something that they do not want to kind of confront because youth culture has been their entire lives. And this therefore means that they have often celebrated the idea of an ageless aging. And it's about what can you do to you know, forestall any sign of aging. Now, the problem is, is that whilst you're able to do that, you're quite content. If you aren't able to, you then become somewhat separated from the baby boomer culture. You know, there's a very good example of Sun City in the USA, which is a, a retirement community which is surrounded by a satellite of a ring of nursing homes because the requirement that you have is as long as you are youthful enough to actually live a active retirement you can stay in sun city once you can't they want you out and so consequently this is a dark shadow on that ageless aging now i would call it the difference between the third age and the fourth age the fourth age being that frightening aspect of not being able to throw the kind of concerns of aging in the bin that it's actually where those concerns become very very uh pertinent to people's lives and i think it's quite interesting that people see that in britain as a threat to their life you know to their to their inheritances and their lives and so consequently we would rather avoid discussing it and spend our time thinking about other things Paula, what of the younger women in the baby boom? And is is this, are you seeing the same phenomenon? Well, I, I think one of the things that strikes me, you know, as a geriatrician and a researcher in this area for many years, is how people don't really see themselves as aging, right? Like, you know, it's sort of like it's something that's over there and there's people that are old, but it's not them. And they don't kind of figure out, which I think is amazing, that you know, if you're lucky, you're going to be there too. You know, like it is sort of something that is going to be happening. So it is important that you pay attention and you sort of think about how you'd like to imagine that for yourself. Uh, And I, I just think there's sort of kind of a funny disconnect there. But I think it's also fair to say that, you know, the vast majority of people are doing well as they age. They're living in their homes. They're fairly independent. And we kind of forget that. And the majority of them are women. And so, you know, one of the things that women want to start talking about, and I think women are talking about, is what do they, how would they like to live in those later years? You know, so you hear stories about women already planning for, you know, they're going to live together in a home and invite their friends. And, you know, that's sort of how they imagine things. 
But there's some really interesting opportunities that people can start thinking about, uh, which are kind of new. And it's about, you know, how do you reimagine the way that you you want to age? So things like looking at um, naturally occurring retirement communities is something that we've been interested in. There's more people living in these communities, which are essentially large apartment buildings or often large apartment buildings, where say about 30% or more of the residents are, are older people than there are living in retirement homes or long-term care homes combined right now. So it's a large group of people. And these people want to stay in those homes. So as Paul was mentioning, often some of the things that you need to do that are are on the social support side. So how can you bring uh, things into those buildings and how can you engage the residents in planning what they would like and making that happen? You know, is it about opportunities for interaction if people are lonely? You know, is it about getting together over dinners or gardening or going walking or book clubs or whatever it is that might be of interest to that particular group of people? And how do you kind of facilitate that? One of the things we're experiencing today and there's uh, it coming out of the pandemic is is a fear of, to your, to your, both of you have made the point almost of fear of aging or a, a lack of acceptance of aging how do we normalize aging? How do we make it okay and safe to uh, uh, to require care and supports? Are there any any countries where culturally uh, you you don't necessarily find the the same fear of getting old or needing help when you get old? It will always be a fear because the point is that one of the things that we have to accept that with aging comes limitations, but that limitation shouldn't be socially stigmatized and shouldn't be seen as threats to everybody else. Because I think you know, one of the things that many people, many many researchers have observed is that older people often don't want to socialize with those people who they see as much more dependent than them, that they themselves don't want to fear, they fear getting stigmatized by association. And I think that Societies that do that, that 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 deal with that stigma better, probably have greater social regard for older people and much more engagement with you know the community. You know, in some senses, that part of the problem of old age in contemporary society is that things are seen as redundant. You know, that you actually no longer need you know, knowledge about what happened in the past. So consequently, you know, technology uh, favours the young, not favours the person who spent years learning how to do something. And I think it's actually the valuing of of old age as old age that probably helps include people and therefore reduces the stigma. Now, a lot of that can be done through intergenerational linkages, because in some senses that what we have seen is that people are interested in what went before, but they need to have you know contexts in which to do it. And certainly some of the most successful you know uh, residential homes have actually made connections between people children in schools and those people who are actually residents because in some senses it's not that the the young are afraid of the old. They learn to become afraid of the old. But it also speaks to like the importance of some of these intergenerational pieces and making that very natural. 
So, you know, Paul sort of talks about um, older people working with younger people. When you think about children in classrooms, large classrooms with a teacher, and, you know, the value of the one-on-one to help with some of the, you know, the reading or the, the different components, and, you know, that's hugely valuable. There's also been that sort of maybe a bit at the other end of the spectrum. Right now, I think we can all relate to housing, super expensive, you know, apartments, very expensive to rent. Uh, students wanting to go to school and looking for accommodation. And you have older people who may have homes and are looking for some companionship. So there's been some very interesting international work done with home share programs. I think starting in Portugal, actually, in Europe, where they brought together, you know, people who had homes that were well matched with sort of students looking for accommodation. And it was a, you know, a huge win-win. You know, you get companionship, you get some income, the students get a place to stay that's affordable. And that kind of programming has, you know, spread around around the world. But these intergenerational win-win opportunities, I think, are just great. One of the questions I'd, I'd love your thoughts on um, each of you is we have this huge aging bubble that is a wave or tsunami, whatever one wants to call it, with our baby boomers. We have, I know, uh, the United Kingdom and Canada have enormous shortages of health human resources, specialized health human resources. And we seem not to have a plan even to get through the next four years in terms of having the capacity to support the increasing needs, let alone the, the next 10 to 15 years. And I can't help but reflect uh, the baby boomers had to be very creative when it came to creating a workforce to educate their children. Uh, they all, we also know that their parents had to be very creative uh, in building out a workforce in the Second World War of, of healthcare workers and, and create cores of, of, of supports for communities uh, during, during and after the war. So to your point about learning from other generations, uh, we seem not to want to look back to some of the, the bolder innovation. How, how do we think about, what are your thoughts in terms of how are we going to support our, our, our aging populations in, in the United Kingdom and, and, and Canada? And where do we find the people to help us? And, and what are some of the innovations we need to be looking to? Well, I think there are two issues. One, one, one of the issues is the, the fact that often the caring workforce is not valued very highly. And so as a consequence, they get very low wages in the UK that they regard as unskilled manual labor and get paid according, accordingly. So this is, this is one major issue that we actually need to be aware that like the, you know, the care that is provided in health services, we need to value the, the care that is provided by social care. Another issue, which I think is also maybe a dead end, personally, is the kind of investment in technology that will actually overcome the problem of care. And here you see the kind of uh, response of the Japanese government, which is that they want most of the care automated and roboticized. And they, they have spent a lot of money doing this. Now, one of the things is that you can get certain care practices covered by machines, but that most people, particularly those who are frail, particularly those who've got cognitive impairment, do not really want a robot to care. They want a person to care for them. Also, you know, if you actually look at the costs of, of the most complex machine that can do 
what a carer can do. It's 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 in the you know millions and millions of dollars, pounds, yen, and I think that it would be a much more sim- simple thing to acknowledge that people want to see people and actually pay them at a, a rate that actually makes that a, a career worth doing. Yeah, Paula. So I think you know you've you've raised like one of the biggest challenges we're facing right now, right? Like we're talking about sort of some of the challenges of providing care sort of in all sorts of sectors. But particularly important for the aging population, as you as you mentioned, we're about to be a super age society here in Canada. You know, large proportion of our population over the age of the age of, of 65, and that's happening around the world. So we do have to think differently. And, you know, Paul, you mentioned, you know, the idea of the carers, you know, not being valued. And I think that is super important. They do very valuable, skilled work. And one of the things to think about is not just bringing them in, but the retention piece. And how do you allow them to have career paths so that they can continue to build on their skills and continue to get the education that they need while being on the job? Because often they can't afford to sort of go off and sort of do education and come back. So I think there's a huge piece that you could do to build capacity there. The other thing to think about which I think we really need to look at carefully is this whole idea about retirement. You know, we now know that people are often spending more time in their retirement years than they were in their work years and people have so much to offer. And I think some of the countries that are doing really well have really promoted the importance of education for people who have so-called retired or retired from ever that, whatever that work was. And I think there's a, a very big opportunity to continue to engage older people in the workforce past their whatever that retirement was, or even, you know, to reconsider when retirement makes sense based on what people have to offer. And so I think that's a very big uh, untapped uh, opportunity going forward. As we think about what we're facing collectively, and it's so interesting as we try to problem solve each country, Canada, each province, we're all trying to figure it out on our own. This is such a rich discussion because there's so much commonality in, in what we're trying to address. And and just going back to some of our, your earlier comments, Paula, as we're thinking about who are the people we are largely going to be caring for, they're, they're going to be women. And we know, certainly in Ontario, the majority of our care workers are women. And so you've got that, that, that double overlay and the people who are leaving our long-term care homes uh, and our healthcare system today are women. They're nurses, uh, they're women, they're burnt out. And, and they're not feeling valued. Uh, so even our more skilled healthcare workers are, are leaving today. Paul, you have the privilege of being a professor of sociology and aging. Paula, you have your wonderful uh, Women's Age Lab here in Canada. As we think about the, the future of aging and what we need to be doing, how do we mobilize how do we keep pushing on, on more research areas, but at the same time, pushing out the content and making it come to life? Well, maybe I think that's why we started Women's Age Lab, which was started almost a year ago. So it's relatively new. But it's interesting, you know, the purpose of Women's Age Lab, it's, it's to focus on the needs of older women from a research perspective and to think about how you, you learn about them from the science uh, you figure out how to translate that into practice, and then you you talk about it. You know, you make sure that people are aware about. It. 
One of the things I think that's most striking about my experience in starting this is that to the best of our knowledge, we're the first and only research center in the world that's focusing on older women. I think that says a lot about sort of the attention that older women have had and the need for attention in that area. And when we started, I mean, there's just so much that we could do, but we did identify a series of areas that we thought were particularly pertinent to older women and maybe areas that really require attention. So one, of course, is, you know, congregate care, which we've talked about, you know, majority of people in long-term care are, are women. Uh, another area that, uh, and, and the idea of reimagining care there, you know, how do we do things differently as we plan to the future? So very important area. We're talking about gendered ageism, which is what we've been talking about here today, which is one of those issues that maybe underlies without us recognizing it, a lot of the issues that we're we're looking at like discrimination based on sex and age that maybe results in a lot of these issues not having received the attention that they deserve. We're also looking at issues around medications because we've touched on the fact that older people, especially women, have a lot of chronic conditions. So medications become an issue that is important. You know, women are more prone to have adverse drug events. And it's very important that these medications are managed in a way that are tailored to the needs of uh, also thinking about these social issues that have sort of we've alluded to in a variety of the conversations, but this idea about loneliness that impacts all of us, but particularly impacts women, the majority of the older population, where twice as many women are likely to live alone and about 40% of those say they're lonely. And it's not just about loneliness, it's also about that loneliness impacts health. So again, coming back to impact women. So um, very important, I think, that we put these issues out there that it's not just something that we're doing, but people everywhere are engaging. I mean, it's an international issue. And obviously, Paul, this is a huge issue in the UK and just everywhere. So it's something that we all need to align on and work together on uh, to see how we can make sure this is something that we have the science for, that we're putting it into practice. And we're having conversations like this today so that you know people are aware of the importance of it. Paul, anything to add? Well, one of the things I think is important and, and, and reiterates what Paula said is that ageing is important to society now because most people will spend a good part of their lives in old age. However, the policies that we've created are, are, you know, reflect a different kind of society in which ageing was a residual issue. And I think that the fact that you know, people are living longer needs to be re, you know, re-engineered in some senses that many of the policies that we have, and particularly the ones that actually have negative consequences on groups like women, but also minority ethnic groups, have to also be rethought. Because in some senses, the old age is no longer separate from the rest of the life course, a kind of like a, you know, a residual category. It's actually now centre of our thinking. And a point is that research needs to then reflect on that and suggest ways of making everybody's old age much better. I just think aging is now one of the most important issues for society to think about, not just in Canada, but around the world. You know, there's there's few issues that are, are more important than that. It's one of those top tier issues. And to make it top tier, I think it's something that uh, you know, certainly from a research perspective, we have to be out there and doing our work. But it also is important from a government perspective. And, you know, one of the things we need at the top 
is we need in our country an aging strategy and we don't have one. And I think, you know, given all the things that we've said, um, it's time that we have an aging strategy that ensures that we're thinking uh, on a, in, a, in a way forward how to make aging uh, the best as possible for our older people in our country. Well said. You know, I think to your points, the architecture of the past isn't going to serve, it serves neither the present nor the future. And it really is an opportunity for a moment of disruption, but also an an opportunity to bring the humanity back and to bring empathy and compassion and understanding. But instead of building systems around structures and buildings, uh, really step back to look at who the people are and to to tackle some of these bigger issues, but do with urgency and uh, to learn from one another and uh, not re- repeat the mistakes of the past, but recognizing it's, it's, it's a different culture, it's a different world, uh, and it needs to be a different uh, future as we go forward. Thank you both for your leadership, your creativity, your, your curiosity, and for providing a, a great foundation for discussions like these. Uh, we look forward to uh, learning more of your work uh, and uh, sharing your work with the world. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. The particular ageism facing older women and the impact it can have on their lives is an issue that needs more attention. As Paul noted, the policies in today's society still largely reflect the times when the majority of people didn't live as long and aging was more of what he called a residual issue. But with more people, more women, living longer for as much as a third of their lives after retirement, it's important to look at what our society offers and make sure it doesn't have negative consequences for older women. It's a different world today, and we need a different future. Thank you for listening. This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Arjo. Arjo believes that empowering movement within healthcare environments is essential to quality care, with products and solutions that are designed to promote a safe, and dignified experience through patient handling, medical beds, personal hygiene, disinfection, and the prevention of pressure injuries and venous thromboembolism, Arjo is committed to driving healthier outcomes for people facing mobility challenges. Learn more about Arjo Solutions at arjo.ca. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, Meeting the Needs of Our Aging Population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate our show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan.